Howdy, y'all, and welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Problematic Women are in Texas. We're at a conference here, and I walked into the conference center today. The first thing I heard was country music playing. I was pleased. I was like, yes. Yes. I am in Texas. Virginia, do all of your exes live in Texas? Just one or two, actually. (laughs) They're spread out around. We don't know about that. (laughs) It's been so fun. I've already had a big, tall glass of Shinerbach. Uh, the weather's a little overcast, but the property is beautiful. I'm really excited to be here. It is lovely. Yeah, there's a beautiful entryway in. Uh, and we talked a little bit a couple weeks ago about what we're doing here. We're in Texas for a conference called Resource Bank, which is a large heritage foundation conference that really brings together leaders in the conservative movement to talk about the issues that are facing America today, how we tackle those, how we solve them. Uh, and we're getting to talk to a lot of the awesome folks right here doing podcast interviews, the folks that are going to be speaking during the conference. So it's going to be a good time. We're excited to be here. So excited. All right, Lauren, what do we have queued up for today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, we are joined by friend of the show, Representative Kat Kamek. Representative Kamek joined us about six months ago, and she joins us again today to talk about what being a member of Congress is really like. She also shares a bit about her recent trip to the southern border and what practical policy initiatives she is focused on right now. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative weaning or problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong independent women, please review and rate our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. So pleased to be joined by Congresswoman Kat Kamick of Florida. Congresswoman, thank you so much for being back on today. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here, Miss Virginia. So we talked with you on the show, let's see, back probably in November of 2020, Feels right like after a lifetime ago. you had won your election. It does feel like a long time ago. <laughs> so uh, it's been six months now yeah. that you have been in Congress. Has it been what you expected? Is being a member of Congress what you thought it would be? I feel way, way older. (laughs) And it feels a lot longer than six months, I can tell you that. Um, You know, when when I look back to um, the election and orientation, it really does feel like a lifetime ago because in this very short six months, we have really taken on and dealt with so much. You know, the the liberal left really never sleeps. And I think that if I had to put a word to what we've experienced in the House in the last six months, I would say chaos. And I I think it's planned uh, chaos. The House calendar has changed multiple of times, you know, no opportunity to really read bills and dig into the legislation. Committee hearings are virtual and really more for show. People pop on for five minutes and then jump off. And and really, I think it's just a, a plan to keep conservatives and the Republicans on their toes so we're not able to really strategize or form a cohesive front to push back against this. So it's been chaotic, uh, but at the same time, I walk into the Capitol and I still get those butterflies, you know, in your stomach and you have to look up at at the walls and, and the murals that are painted there and you look at the statues and, you know, you have to really take a moment to 
to recognize that, hey, this is where the greats walked. This is, you know, where it all really, I mean, the history of our country and, and, and everything that our country has been through. And, and that still gives me that feeling, uh, a pretty humbling feeling. And so as long as I'm still getting those little butterflies, I think we're going to be okay. It's a little surreal. Very <laughs> surreal. Very surreal. Well, I know the last time you were on the show, you talked about how you love giving behind the scenes glimpses and you did this on your campaign you wanted to show people what is running for congress actually like so what are maybe some behind the scenes you know kind of insider information that you can give us about what being a member of congress is actually like oh okay um well (laughs) you're gonna get a hodgepodge here so (laughs) um one of the things that i've tried to do as a member is as you said you know really give a day in the life behind the scenes look at everything that goes on and it's everything from the very serious of hey this is the legislation the nuts and bolts you're in the weeds this is is what this means. This is how we're looking at it. Uh, we talked about really all the different titles and components of um, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Reform Bill and went title by title to really explain how dangerous this bill was. And and that's not for everyone. Not everyone is, you know, a policy wonk. Uh, uh, but there's also... Uh, you know, a side of of being a member of Congress that a lot of people don't get to see. They don't get to see you sitting at your desk with, you know, curlers in your hair, having your second cup of coffee at five o'clock in the morning, trying to dig into the legislation. They don't get to see the ledge meetings that you have with your staff where you're kind of just taking it all in and, and strategizing about how you're going to approach that bill. And so be it um, on social media or in videos that we'll send out with our newsletter we try to do little moments and shed light on little moments, whether it's walking to the floor and I'm talking about the bill that we're getting ready to vote on or the dynamics of Congress where we don't get the opportunity to meet. And I have done um, a couple of posts that people really, you know, kind of look at and they're like, well, why are you talking about that? No one cares about that. And I think it's important. All aspects of the life of a member are important because it all feeds into the decision-making process. For me, you know, I live in my office. (laughs) I sleep in my office. And so I I go to bed at about midnight and after reading all the homework that my team has prepared for me, and then I'm up at 445 getting ready for, you know, congressional baseball because, you know, congressional baseball season is upon us. And, you know, we go do those early morning practices And that's how we're building relationships, because in COVID, we don't have that opportunity to be around each other. So this is the one opportunity that we have to actually see people in person. So that for me is very important because Washington is a city where you succeed based on your relationships. And so people aren't really understand they don't understand all the things that go into it and then you know your day really gets underway by eight o'clock when you're just from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting so we're going to continue to keep showing those little moments throughout the day that a lot of people don't get a chance to see um it's kind of like a reality show in a lot of ways um but you know i hope that people who follow us on social media they they take a look at that and they say you know i could do that Mm -hmm. And if they feel inclined or if they have a passion and a fire to run for office, I hope that they do because we're just regular people. We're just, you know, 
normal folks that had a desire to run and really make our communities and our districts and our state and our country better. And Mm -hmm. so I hope that it humanizes us a little bit. Yeah. I love that you do that, that you give that inside glimpse. Uh, And even, I love that you're on the baseball team. That's so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any other congresswomen on the team? Um, Lisa McLean's come to a few practices. Good. Yeah. Um, So we'll see. I mean, the practices are every single day that we're in session. Wow. And um, like I said, the thing that, um, really was interesting about it to me was one it raises over a million dollars uh, for charity and I love that the other part was I had a a member come up to me and Trent Kelly and he said you're gonna really want to do baseball and I said why and he said it's a there's a lot of fun you get a workout in the morning it forces you to get up out of bed and go work out and he's like but the thing that you will take away are the relationships and he couldn't have been more accurate in that because the first day of practice I get assigned to second base and I'm standing there next to Steve Scalise and Kevin Brady and Mike Bost and I'm like you are all the the gentlemen that I need to talk to about initiatives (laughs) on veterans issues and all these other things that we're working on and and it's been true you know you really get to know people out there and with COVID, we just haven't had that opportunity to really get together and know um, our colleagues in that way that you need to in order to get things done. Yeah. What a unique experience to be getting to know those individuals on a baseball field. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of unconventional, but it it works. It works well. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I do want to take a minute to ask you about your recent trip down to the southern border. I know my colleague, Rachel Del Juda, spoke with you on the Daily Signal podcast about this. Um, but you're a member of the Homeland Security Committee. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that trip, how it impacted you and what you saw. You know, um, in a word, I would say that trip, and, and I've been down there twice, and both have been um, equally uh, tough, but uh, walking away, I would say they're pretty horrific experiences mm-hmm. on so many different levels. On on a very human level, talking to little kids who have made this horrific journey uh, sometimes with a parent, sometimes with a total stranger, um, being used as a pawn and trafficked. And the majority of the young girls are being sexually assaulted and abused on their way across the border. Um, from a national security standpoint, talking with Border Patrol agents, talking with uh, our CBP officers at the legal ports of entry, talking with Texas Rangers and really all the, the players involved in national security and border security. The fact that we have foreign nationals coming here from Romania, which is number nine. We have had, they're listed as number nine, most of foreign nationals coming here. Honduras is number one. Mexico is number two. Romania. Can you imagine the journey that you have to take? And, and we're seeing these people come from China, and they're being smuggled in. And you have to ask, you know, what vetting is going on here? Well, I saw firsthand not a whole heck of a lot. You know, they're not even running biometrics on children um, under the age of 12. So that's how they're perpetuating this cycle of really recycling the children or trafficking the children. Um, You know, I I told your colleague I saw and spoke with a nine-year-old girl whose vocal cords had given out because she had been screaming so loud from being gang raped. These are the stories that just stick with you and you have nightmares about. And you think about the the babies who are coming over here 
pregnant, having babies. Um, you know, I, I talked to a 14 year old girl that was pregnant. These, these are horrific stories, but you have to take a step back and recognize that our government is complicit in the trafficking of these kids because at the invitation of Biden, they are coming here because they have been misled. And for those that are coming here because they want to do harm or traffic drugs, they're taking advantage of that. They're taking advantage of people fleeing from pretty terrible situations. And it's it's pretty bad when you have social media companies that are complicit in it, helping the cartels place ads, um, advertising these services. You, you have, um, you know, WhatsApp being used as the means to handle the logistics of this. And you're seeing people on the terrorist watch list that are being apprehended. But the thing that's really terrifying to me, especially being a member on Homeland Security, is the number of gotaways. So when I was out in the brush with the Texas Rangers and Border Patrol, they told me very early on, the people who are coming here that have been smuggled across and paid the cartels, they will seek you out. They will seek officials out and they'll walk up to a Border Patrol truck and they'll sit down and they'll just wait because they know they're going to get processed. For the people that don't want to be caught, those are your gotaways. Those are the people that have criminal records. They're violent offenders. Uh, they're on the watch list. They're, they have drugs on them. They are coming here for ill intentioned purposes. And just this year, we have close to 200,000 gotaways. And gotaways are people that have been seen by a Border Patrol agent. They have attempted to pursue them, but haven't been able to apprehend them. Or the technology, the cameras, have caught them running away as they cross the border. That's 200,000 people just on camera or from a visual on the Border Patrol side that have been seen coming over, fleeing to get away. They could be bringing anything in. They could be doing anything. And the thing that I, I tell everyone is this should be the number one priority right now because every town in America is a border town. Every drug that is smuggled across the border that isn't caught, that is landing in our communities. These criminals are coming to our communities. I can tell you that because in my own hometown of Gainesville, Florida, my husband, who's a first responder, he's responded to the same man three times who is overdosing on the latest cocktail of drugs that they have managed to cook up. And it's fentanyl and it's heroin and it's deadly. These drugs are coming from the southwest border and they know that. As you were down there and talking with these Border Patrol agents, what do they need? Oof. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I think first and foremost, our Border Patrol agents, um, the, the, the agency as a whole, CBP, they have a real morale issue. Um, they, they don't feel like they have the support and backing of this administration and their higher ups. So they really need the secretary and the White House to get on board and let them do their jobs. I can't tell you how many agents I have talked to or who I still have communication with on a daily basis um, that say, our hands are tied behind our back. I'm, I'm counting down the, the years, months, and days to when I can retire. Mm. And there's just simply not enough agents right now to do their job properly the way that the laws are written on the book. So first and foremost, we need to have an administration that's going to have the, back, uh, the backs of our Border Patrol agents. 
Second thing we need to do is we actually have to enforce the laws on the books. And a lot of that will fix the morale issues because they just simply want to uphold the law as it is written. I think that the policies uh, from President Trump, the Title 42, uh, which was a CDC directive that really is kind of holding the line on the legal ports of entry side of it. But then the MPP policy, the Migrant Protection Policy, that those two things I have heard repeatedly from every single agent I have talked to, and I have talked to upwards of 100 agents at this point, they all say, if we had those in place, our life would be better. So much so much can be resolved just through the implementation of those programs. But we all know that Biden, by executive order, stripped those programs because they had Trump's name attached to them. So I, I would say, one, it, they need that public sign of support and it's pretty it's pretty disheartening when the borders are and or i should say so-called borders are um hasn't even been to the border you know i mean what what kind of message does that send when secretary mayorkas the homeland security secretary is too chicken to even leave the airport and makes them come in off of the line that's a problem but, you know, it's they need that sign of support and then they need to actually have the ability to do their jobs. We invest in these people. We train these folks. They know the laws. They know the policies. Let them do their job. And I think it's about time that we get back to the America first policy. I mean, secure the dang border. And when you talk about the, the wall and the halting of the construction, I went and visited Chimney Park, which is a, a small community right there on the river, right there where the construction of the wall is taking place. They don't call it the wall there along that area. They call it the levee because it's the only thing that stops their community from being wiped out in a flood. Now it's now June 1st. It's rainy season, hurricane season. If that wall, if that levee doesn't get completed, their property, their businesses, everything gets wiped out. That's 250,000 people that will be in direct line of sight for a flooding event. And I think that's important to mention because via executive order, Biden stopped that construction. But what he didn't stop was the payments. So now we as taxpayers are on the hook paying for a levee, a wall, a force multiplier is what the, the agents call it. But we're paying them not to build. How crazy is that? It's wild. Totally wild. Yeah. Why do you think Biden seems almost determined to not address that this truly is a crisis? You know, I, I think if he were to use the term crisis or acknowledge that there's a problem, it would send a signal that their policies are inviting this type of chaos on the border. Right now, their narrative has been, oh, this was happening under Trump. It continues to happen. We have it under control. I think that they are so hell-bent on maintaining an image. Yeah. Just like what we're seeing right now with the origins of COVID. Mm -hmm. They're so hell-bent on maintaining an image and keeping that crafted narrative in place that they can't acknowledge when there's a problem. But if they can't even acknowledge that we have a problem on the southwest border, then they have no capacity to actually handle it. We could continue talking about the border for the next two hours, but I, know, I do want to. I, I do know. No, I'm the one asking you questions about it. 
just fascinating. Uh, I do want to talk about a couple other issues, though. Um, you know, one of the things I love about you, Congresswoman, is how practical you are. I feel like you have zeroed in on issues that everyday Americans deal with, and you've said, okay, let's come up with solutions. And one of those issues is supply chains. Yes. Uh, that's, that's an issue that affects us all in a deeply personal way more than yes. we realize <laughs> yes well and first can can you please get that message to my husband that you think i'm practical <laughs> he would be thrilled and actually would actually kind of laugh at that he thinks i am the least practical person on that's the planet great. that's great <laughs> well but i think you know during covid we all saw like yeah. oh my goodness mm-hmm. our stuff comes from all over the world and when there's an interruption in that that affects mm-hmm. what you can cook for dinner or, you know, so many different things. Um, so talk a little bit about your focus and your work on trying to ensure that America is moving away from our dependence on China mm-hmm. and that we have supply chain systems that work. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that COVID highlighted so acutely for all Americans, something that we've kind of been screaming at the top of our lungs from all the rooftops for a long time about how very fragile this supply chain really is, because we have shipped jobs overseas, we've shipped manufacturing overseas, we have really become a economy that unfortunately is based in service, right? And as consumers, we don't always see what happens if you don't have the raw materials that then turn in, you know, right? And so for me, being a Floridian, I always try to talk about the fact that more than 80% of the items that land within a home come from one of our ports. Right. And for in Florida, we have 14 of these ports where we import things from all around the world. Now, China, obviously has the lion's share of the widgets of processing. I mean, heck, um, even Smithfield products, you know, um, the pork products. If you're in in a grocery store, a Kroger, a Trader Joe's, Publix, whatever it may be, and you see that Smithfield brand, that's now a Chinese brand. The Chinese actually purchased that brand, and we have the hogs here in America, but they do the processing over in mainland China and then ship mm-hmm. it back. Mm-hmm. Now, people don't really recognize that, mm-hmm. but it's everything from the polypropylene pellets that get turned into PPE, the masks, the, um, the gowns, uh, everything that you can really imagine from soup to nuts, crit- rare earth minerals, um, plastics, you name it. It's, it's coming from China. And with China also being one of the major holders of our debt, you have to start wondering at what point are we going to be so dependent on China that they're going to start calling the shots for us. And when you look at why during COVID you had uh, milk trucks dumping milk in fields or farmers disking up squash in fields, It wasn't because we aren't able or capable of producing our own food or producing our own um, our own widgets or goods. Right. It's because we have pushed the investment that is necessary overseas. And when you look at the basics, the trucks, for example, the average age of your truck driver is 56 years old. That's old. That's that's not looking great. Mm-hmm. Things need trucks. They need rail. They need the basics. And if we don't have that workforce and we're not investing in that workforce and those critical lines of distribution, things are going to get very, very hairy very quickly. Yeah. 
And I think we've done a very a big disservice um, through our education system, not investing in VOTEC and the trades. We've done a very large disservice in educating our kids about where our food comes from. A nation that can't feed itself is not secure. And we have seen a dramatic increase in imports from overseas and largely Mexico. The minute that those trucks start stop coming, it's not like you get your food from Publix. Yeah, yeah. So we have to really do an education in and an emphasis in really push the Made in America initiatives. And I am um, I'm actually getting ready to drop a bill here in the next few months that um, will be a very large program, uh, a good program designed to incentivize a domestic production of our food rather than foreign food because that is a massive national security concern that's a that's an amazing push that you're pursuing that uh, and a big lift that's wonderful (laughs) we're excited about it that's really exciting we'll have to have you back on sometime to talk more about that that's wonderful yeah well and one of the other issues that again is very very practical uh that you talked about last time you were on the show is that of high-speed internet to areas that don't have it can you give us an update on how your work and policy initiatives around that are going so again kind of going back to covid i I feel like we're going to start talking about things, you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID. Yes. You know, <laughs> before and after. <laughs> we're, we're going to have that that timeline for forevermore. But you know, it was a huge issue before. Mm-hmm. But I think, especially after the fact, if you were doing anything in the way of telehealth, if you were doing anything with running a business online, or heaven forbid, you were just brick and mortar, you didn't have an online presence, you had to all of a sudden adapt and and get online. And then, of course, our kids everybody had to start Zooming for school. So it became more critical than ever that people had access to high-speed, reliable, and affordable internet. Now, in most parts of America, that's not really the case. In major urban cities, sure. But even still, there's some underserved communities, and that's really from a lack of competition. So we introduced the Gigabit Opportunity Act. It is a conservative way that we can incentivize some of these smaller providers to actually get in the broadband game. I don't think the answer is government. Government is typically never the answer. And the least amount of interference that we can have, the better. But what we can do is we can incentivize and really facilitate an environment where people have the barriers to entry in a market like this lowered, where they can then work with the states more in identifying the areas of most critical need. And right now we just have too too few providers, which means the prices are going to be unaffordable. So the best way we can do it is foster that competition and let the free market work because when people see a path to invest in a community and they know that they're going to be able to do it without the interference of the government and the regulations and the red tape that comes with it, that's a win. And so the Gigabit Opportunity Act I'm really excited about. We introduced with over 30 original co-sponsors. Wow. And we are very excited because we are building up a blueprint right now for other members of Congress to be able to implement in their own districts so that they can deliver broadband to their constituents in the same way that we are. So we're excited about it. so practical. I love it. We're excited about it. It's very exciting. Yeah. I mean, it affects us all literally every day. Exactly. And so many different aspects of our world, whether it be school or work. Exactly. Exactly. It's an equalizer for sure. So as you think about the next six months, what do you have your, your sight set on? 
getting some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I'd like to get a few good nights sleep. Yes. yes. But, um, uh, honestly, there's a couple of, there's a couple of veterans initiatives that I would love to, to see advance that we've been working on. Um, very excited about the introduction of our, uh, farmers feeding America act, mm-hmm. um, really harnessing the innovative and, uh, and, and very, rich history and 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 culture that our ag producers bring um there's there's a lot of things that of course i would love to see accomplished it's difficult when you're in the minority but more than anything i would love for us as conservatives to to really band together and begin highlighting as in a cohesive way the hypocrisy of what's happening on the left. Mm. We have some really dangerous initiatives that are being pushed by the left and if you look at the infrastructure bill you look at the budget Heck, you look at the earmarks that are being pushed. This is just garbage that is really, really uh, dangerous. We're spending our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids' um, future. I mean, we're, we're literally hawking it. And I just I think that Americans, if they knew what was going on in Washington, they would be standing up, pushing back screaming at the top of their lungs. And I think we're getting there. People, even people that are middle of the road, they see what's happening. They don't like it. I think there's a real, um, a real need right now for conservatives to band together and to really, really push back against this very scary, dangerous liberal agenda. Yeah. Well, Congresswoman, thank you for being one of those voices that's out there speaking (laughs) truth and pushing back. And we really appreciate you joining the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Virginia. Appreciate you. (laughs) Now stay tuned because up next, we're jumping right into crowning our problematic woman of the week. But first, I want to tell you all about a great way that you can stay in the know on all of the news that The Daily Signal is covering. And that is, of course, through social media. The Daily Signal has an active presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're constantly posting news stories, clips from interviews, videos, reels, so much great content. So go ahead, pull out your phone and subscribe across all of your favorite social media apps so that you can stay in the know on what the Daily Signal is talking about. And now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Elena Richardson. Elena is not only a dear friend of ours, she is the director of the Young Leaders Program here at the Heritage Foundation, and we caught up with her at Resource Bank to see what she's doing in some of the Rising Leaders, a program that she's running. Let's go to Elena for more. So we are here at Resource Bank with some very lovely women. I have Elena Richardson, I have Bess Blackburn, and I have Sharice Lane. So really excited for this conversation. I want to start with you, Elena. We have colleagues, friends. Can you give us a little look into what you're doing at the conference here and then also what you do at Heritage more broadly? Sure. Thanks, Lauren. You know, I'm really excited that the Young Leaders Program for the second year has been able to bring together outstanding rising leaders. And that's what we're doing today at the Resource Bank is uh, actually having a Rising Leaders Fellowship. We've only had this twice. Uh, last year, because of COVID, we had to uh, reschedule. And, and so we were able to really focus on bringing in who are going to be the next um, you know, leaders at the helm ready to take over uh, and 
trying to effectively communicate the message, but also what opportunities are there. And and I think the Resource Bank is actually the perfect opportunity and location to do this, is to identify how can we be a resource to that next generation? How can we be a resource in, ide- in identifying either what's next personally, professionally, um, and in impacting their communities? And so we're doing a little bit of a um, of an economic kind of focus of free markets, of free enterprise, uh, but then also having them participate in the larger conference as a whole. So we have people from, you know, who are taking gap years right out of high school all the way to master's students and young professionals who are already working, uh, coming together to identify opportunities uh, for impact. So I want to start and get to know these young leaders that we have with us. So uh, Bess, can you introduce yourself, where you're from, and why you came to the conference? Sure. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, my name is Bess Blackburn, and I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, but I currently reside most of the time in Lynchburg, Virginia these days. I just finished up my graduate degree in history, and I'm about to go to Liberty University of School of Law. I wanted to come to the conference because I love the Heritage Foundation, and I am just so burdened for our nation. I think a lot of people, they, they think from a young age, oh, I'm going to go to this specific nation and help and be there, and I've always felt that for here, for my own country, both from a cultural standpoint as well as a more legal courtroom um, aspect with me going to law school. And so I'm just excited to be here and to learn um, and to meet more people uh, that have that same drive and mission. Awesome. So excited that you're here. And Sharice, what about you? Yes. Hello, my name is Sharice Lane. I am from Orlando, Florida. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to come to the Heritage Foundation is because they inspire me when it comes to the policy that they try to get passed. You know, a lot of organizations, they are sometimes all over the place. But when I see Heritage Foundation, I see their consistency and I see you know, their heart for getting those policies to Congress to get passed and, you know, just pass, passing passing good things. So I'm I'm very excited to be here. Um, one of the things that also is sticking out to me is the speakers that, I, that I'm witnessing so far because I want to do that one day. And so they are very inspiring to me that I can do it. Even if I do, even if I am scared sometimes of, you know, public speaking, I can do it. And so it's definitely, it's definitely been great being here so far. And I can't wait for the rest of the days to come. So I want to ask some questions about your fellow rising leaders. What does the class look like and what kind of relationships have you made with them so far? Uh, so our class so far, we've, we've literally been with each other less than 24 hours, but it's already been a wonderful experience and getting to meet so many people from so many different places. We have people that are leading the college Republicans at Georgetown. We have people at Grand Canyon in Arizona. We have people going to the London School of Economics in the fall. We've got law students uh, just all across the board. Um, and I think it's, it was very tangible in the way that we already connected so well last night. We had all flown in and we had... Um, a very long day and I couldn't hear myself talk in the bus on the way back to our hotel last night. We were all just going on and on about several different topics, just spanning from politics to culture to, you know, what what we're looking forward to this week. Um, and so it's just been really neat to see how when we have similar values that the Heritage Foundation uh, principles and we all come together, shockingly, we all get along quite well. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how those relationships continue to develop. So what for you ladies, what would a successful conference look like? What are you really hoping to get out of this weekend? Maybe covering a, a lot of the, the conversations that's going on in the media today. So basically covering those aspects and teaching us how to combat the negativity and 
combat what's going on today in, in the media because that's that's really important. Basically discussing it and pinpointing what we should do, you know, to to get along with the culture, basically. So problematic women, we're all about young women and empowering young women. So what does it mean to see a woman like Elena, you know, helping other women and then getting to be a part of this class? Like, how does that empower you as a conservative woman? What does it mean? It means absolutely everything. We're told so often that we should, we, we have to fight for ourselves, and we have to empower ourselves, and we have to put ourselves first in order to make a difference. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, if we want to be the leader of leaders, we have to start with washing other people's feet. We have to start with uh, doing what the world would say is, is not really the, the ideal thing for us as an individual, but is really better for the greater good. And, and in watching Elena and others, um, it's been incredible to see how you can, you can actually put your country first and you can also put your family first at the same time because those two things shouldn't be at, at, at odds with each other at all. Uh, and it's, it's amazing to see how we as women can specifically speak to that, to that mission and that calling um, that I think the Lord has for all of us. When I saw Miss Elena, the first thing I, I said to myself is I'm like, it's so inspiring that she puts her family first and also, you know, she's able to balance family and politics because that's something that I want to do one day. And so sometimes people make it seem like it's impossible, but it's not impossible because she's a great example of that. So I just want to say thank you for being a great example of, you know, being that, having that balance and also putting your family first because that's just really important. I think, too, we're always told that we can't do it. But when we're when we see that we can, that's a lot more powerful than a hundred you can't. I had to put it in, in uh, um, tangible terms, and that's exactly what Elena provides so many of us with. Not words of encouragement, but an example of encouragement. Well, I love that so much. We could talk about how wonderful Elena is all day. But uh, let's go ahead and wrap it there. Elena, Any, if anyone is listening and interested in participating in next year's program, they heard a internship or even the academy, can you give them any information of where they can apply and, and how they can make themselves a good candidate? Well, I will say 50% of the Rising Leaders class themselves were identified by way of the academy. So if you check out heritage.org backslash the-academy, that would be the perfect way to already um, get the foundation needed. It's a 12-week free leadership program. Um, it's a great way to start. Right now, we actually have 240 in the current class for the academy. It's the largest class yet. We want to reach the masses. We want to be, um, you know, talking about liberty and freedom to all corners of the world. We have 25 international participants this time around, too, as well as 25 high schoolers. And so there, there's no age requirement. We just ask that you're mature, uh, specifically for the high schoolers. Um, so can men not apply until they're like 35? <laughs> All are welcome, Lauren. Uh, <laughs> but um, but that's a great way to start. And then additionally, the internship, our, um, our deadline is actually July 1st for the fall internship. So please feel free to write to the Young Leaders Program at heritage.org. They can write us for more information. We'd be happy to have an information session for anyone interested. Well, Elena, Bess, and Sharice, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. 
And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.